Well, thank you so much, music team. I love that last song. It's so rich and deep, and the poetry is just so beautiful. That last verse, could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every one a scribe by trade, so if all of humanity, if we could all, if you imagine the ocean were the ink, and the sky is the parchment, and everyone participated in this project of writing about the love of God with your quill, your pen. Uh, This is old language, obviously. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Uh, What a beautiful reminder of the love that God has for us. I love that song. Thank you so much music team for pointing us uh, to Christ and particularly the love of God uh, this morning. We are in the middle of a little bit different type of study for us here at Sunrise. We typically go through books of the Bible verse by verse, sometimes word by word as we work our way through the scriptures. This is a little bit different in that we're going to take four weeks here and we are studying the issue of worldview. And it's uh, really what we're doing each week is we're taking a different text, a different set of scriptures sometimes, and we're looking at what God's word has to say about these particular topics. I think it's a very helpful way, it's helpful for me at least, to sort of frame up what's going on in the scripture, and so we'll walk through that again this week. I know many of you have heard me tell this story before, but I think it's important for those of you maybe that are new to the Sunrise family or maybe haven't been here in a bit, um, you should know how I feel about puzzles. Uh, This is a very important uh, topic and issue. Some of you know where this is going. Uh, Some of you enjoy puzzles. You enjoy sitting down and opening a big box of random pieces and parts and seeing if you can put it together. My perspective on puzzles is if you want the picture together, why'd you cut it up in the first place? (laughs) I spend most of my life trying to fix broken things. I don't really want to do that for a hobby. But hey, if you enjoy it, I'm all for you. I'm not offended by you. I'm glad you like it. My family one time, we went to, this is the most homeschool thing I've ever said, um, my family went to a homeschool game night for the curriculum that we were using at the time, this was years ago, and we heard that there was a game night, and the reason we went is we heard that there was possibility of winning some free stuff uh, that night. I'm like, I like free stuff, let's, let's roll. And it was family game night. Well, we show up, and family game night consists of each family gets a puzzle to put together. Again, the most homeschool thing I've ever talked about in my life. And so I'm like, great. My family knows how I feel about puzzles. I'm like, great. This is what we wanted to do tonight. And then they start telling us about the prizes. And it was hundreds of dollars. So I gathered the troops up. We repeated the family motto. We didn't come to win. We came to dominate. (laughs) And I just want you to know that we won that night. (laughs) It's very important for you to know that. In my limited puzzle putting together experience, um, I I have to say I don't deserve a lot of credit for how that night went. My family was uh, very good at that. Um, I was just trying to carry carry my weight, you know. But in my limited puzzle putting together experience, really the most important piece of putting this whole puzzle together, it's really two things. One is if you can get those edge pieces going, you got a chance, right? Um, You got to get the edge pieces going. You got to get the frame. And then you start to group like things together. But there's another piece that is super helpful, and that's the top of the box, right? The top of the box. What am I actually trying to put together? 
because then you can start to see colors, you can start to sort like things, and it starts to all kind of come together and come into focus once you get that. My argument as we walk through this worldview study is you could parachute down in any particular text in Scripture, and sometimes you might just be scratching your head. How in the world does this fit with the rest of the Bible? What is going on in this particular text, particularly if you parachute down into some of the strange text like Ezekiel and you read about his prophecies or some things that Isaiah said or any of the prophets, really. There's some very odd characters, very eccentric characters. Even some of the things that Jesus said make us scratch our heads a little bit. We're talking about some of the hard sayings of the Bible at our equipping hour on uh, Sunday mornings here at nine o'clock. And so you can end up scratching your head a little bit. And my argument is, I think you can really, it, it helps us at least understand the Bible when we see it as the big picture, the picture frame, if you will, when you get the whole picture in your mind. And then also, I think it helps us interpret and understand life. So here's our four points that we've been walking through. We did one of these, creation, last week, and I am limiting myself to talking about only one of these, and I'm limiting myself to only spending one week on each of these. Uh, You could easily double-click on any one of these and have a whole series, whole years of series, in fact, of of study for us, but we're just going to take one week, we're going to do an overview, and then maybe maybe an equipping hour session at some point we can take some of these apart in a little bit more detail. But I want to get the big picture of what's going on. So my argument is that these four points, creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration, it's both the outline of the Bible and then it's the story that explains humanity. It explains life. I think everybody's asking at least four questions about life, whether they're saying it out loud or not, maybe, maybe not. But just think about movies that you watch. Think about, uh, think about books that you read. I think we're wrestling through these four questions. Where did I come from? what's wrong with the world, what's going to fix the world, and then where are we headed? Last week, we talked about this idea of where did I come from? I think, uh, just think of like popular movie study, movie series that are out there. Um, this is, this is what Avengers does, right? Uh, you're, you're wrestling through, particularly fall and redemption, maybe a hint of restoration, and then they all go back and tell the origin story. Y'all notice how popular origin stories have gotten, just in, in popular imagination? Uh, the Star Wars you know, series does this. Um, they, all, all of them are doing this origin story. Question of origin, where did I come from? Disney taps into this a lot. Where did I come from? Who are my parents? The, the, it's, it's a question of origin. Where did I come from? And then we're always wrestling through this idea of evil and suffering, which we'll talk more about today. Your identification of the problem, what's wrong, that's going to influence what you say is going to fix the problem, right? We'll, we'll explore that a little bit. And then redemption in Christ, we would say what's going to fix the world is the question being asked, and then ultimately where are we headed to? So I think you can put the Bible together basically like this. If you read the scripture in Genesis 1 and 2, and then you jump straight to Revelation 20, 21, the Bible actually makes sense. You start with a garden, you end with a city, you have worshipers of God, worshipers of God. We'll talk about this more when we get to the restoration uh, part of this. The problem's the middle. The problem's Genesis 3, the fall, and then all the way through the return of Christ in Revelation 19. What is going on there? I left off last time asking the question, what if God isn't the creator? 
All right, remember, we're asking the question of origin. What if God isn't the creator? I think you have four issues, at least four. There's, of course, more. Human dignity. Why then are humans valuable? Everybody knows humans are valuable. Why? Why is that our reflex? Why do we think that? How do you sustain that argument? Morality. Is there such a thing as right and wrong? Um, is it a real concept, or is it just a construct that's been sort of forced on us? We just all agree to agree that you shouldn't kill people. That's why it's wrong. Well, what if you end up in a culture that doesn't agree that that's wrong? Um, how do you sustain morality? Purpose. Do we actually have any meaning? Um, is there significance to our existence? Are we headed somewhere in the end, and that's our last question of, question of destiny or destination, are we headed somewhere? So let's dive into this issue of the fall, what some would call depravity, the nature of man, and we'll, we'll dive into that. Um, my, one of my arguments, at least this morning, is that everybody knows there's something wrong with the world, all right, just think about that for a second. Have you ever had a sustained, like, real serious conversation with somebody who would make the argument there's absolutely nothing wrong with the world? Has anybody had that conversation? I don't, I've never had that conversation. Um, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the world. Everything is just as great as it possibly could be. I don't think anybody's actually making that case. So what is wrong with the world? What's the issue? A few quotes to get us thinking this morning. Lewis said, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. The long and terrible story of man trying to find something other than God to make him happy. Thomas McCall, I've really been benefited by his work on this. He says it this way, evidence of sin is splashed across the pages of human history. Just a memorable way to remember that. And we know that's true, don't we? If you've studied history at all. Some have called sin, the doctrine of sin, the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. The only thing that we can actually verify. Because <laughs> everybody knows it's true. And I think that's probably accurate. So what is wrong with the world? Our answer to this question is so important. Because as Mike Horton said, if sin is not the problem, the cross is not the answer. Think about that, the implications of that. If sin is not the problem, then the cross is not the answer. If it's all the Democrats or the Republicans' fault, what's needed then is a regime, a regime change, right? If the problem is you know, these terrible environmental policies, well, what's needed then is to fix those policies. If the problem, whatever it is. If that's the problem then the answer is not necessarily the cross. These are issues we should care about, by the way. I'm not saying that. I'm saying from the big picture point of view, what is the problem? The ultimate problem is the problem of sin. And the tentacles of sin reach all the way into every part of human existence and society. And it's very encouraging news for us today, right? Hang in there with me. We'll get there. I think it's very important. There's a reason, though, we didn't start our worldview conversation with sin in particular. I think when you talk about humanity, the first thing you have to do is talk about the good. Humans are created in the image of God. You know, the Bible doesn't start with sin. You ever thought about that? 
Um, test your reflexes on this. If I were just to sit down, I've sort of colored the way that you'll answer this question now, I understand, but just think about it. If I were just to sit down with you and say, tell me what humans are like, what would be your first reflex? You know, I tap you on the knee, what comes out? What would be your first reflex? I think many of us would default towards humans are terrible, terrible things, terrible creatures, we're sinful. I think that's the default of many. And I understand that. But I think we need to start with the higher level, and that's what we tried to do last week. Nancy Piercy said, beginning with sin instead of creation is like trying to read a book by opening it in the middle. You don't know the characters and make, can't make sense of the plot. So it doesn't start with that. The reason the fall is so catastrophic is because of what humans were designed to be, the image bearers of God. That's why the fall is such terrible news. All right, so let's talk about this thing we call the fall. We're not talking about that time of year where the leaves start to turn in some parts of the world and it starts to cool down in some parts of the world. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the fall of humanity from glorifying God to rebelling against God. So let's talk about it. Four points as we walk through this and there'll be a little bit more that we examine under some of these, but the big picture is this. What's wrong with the world? We'll see, that's not good. The fallout of the fall, the fall and our falling, the gospel and the fall, all right? Simple enough, four big points. So that's not good. Let's see what we mean by that. Go to Genesis chapter three, if you have a Bible with you. Go to Genesis chapter three, and I wanna read down through verse five. There's so much going on here, so many interesting little nuggets for us to dive into here. This is probably titled in your Bible, The Fall. Three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of, the, of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now there's a lot going on here in this first temptation account. There's a twisting of God's word. The first thing is Satan twist God's word. You shall, did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, actually, no, God didn't say that. He said you could eat of any tree except for one. So that's the first twisting. But then notice what happens in this conversation with Eve. I wanna bounce back and forth between two, 16 and 17, and what happens in three, two and three, and show you what's going on here. So there was a privilege that the people were given. Go back to chapter two and verse 16. Actually, we'll start reading verse 15. So this was the original. God has formed the man, Adam, puts him in the garden, and he tells him, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. All right? So first thing that happens is when Satan comes and says, did God really say this? She gets it wrong just a little bit. She gets it wrong. He had said, you may surely eat of every tree that's in the garden. She didn't repeat that part. She just says, you may eat of every tree that's in the garden. Interesting. Maybe by itself, that's not that significant of a point. But watch what else happens. So there's the privilege. It's minimized. The prohibition is maximized. 2.17. Go back to chapter 2. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. But then Eve says, what? Verse 3. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And she adds, a, she adds something here. Notice, neither shall you touch it. Now, God didn't actually say that. They're creating a fence to protect them from the actual danger. We operate this way, so I think I understand what's going on here. Let's just pretend for a moment that you're trying to do one of those no-sugar diet types of things for a little while. Bless you. And you say, I'm not going to eat any sweets for, let's say, 30 days. It's a bad idea to bake some fresh cookies and say, I just want to be able to smell them. Right? I'm just, I, just, I just like to smell the cookies. I'm not going to eat them because I'm not doing that. But I'm going to smell them. And I'm just going to leave them on the counter because I just like to walk by and smell them. And then I'm going I'm to pick one up every now and then, just kind of look at it and put it back down. Bad plan, right? Bad plan. So I think we could... I think we can identify here, there's a fence to protect you from the actual danger. So you're not supposed to eat of it, and Eve says, we're not supposed to touch it. Well, he didn't actually say that, though. Sort of like when the kids are young, you don't want them in the street, and so you tell them don't go to the sidewalk, because it gives you, you know, a good six feet of disobedience before the actual danger starts, and it's a healthy buffer for us sometimes. So I understand that. But she maximized the prohibition. That's not actually what God said. And then the consequences are downplayed as well. Back in verse 17, if you eat of this tree, God said you're going to surely die. Now, in the original, the way that you emphasize something is you say it twice. Literally, it says you're going to die, die. Um, Like, really dead. (laughs) All dead. Die, die. That's how it's said. Our English, we don't speak that way, so it comes across for us with the adjective, surely die. All right, so you're going to surely die instead of die, die. But Eve doesn't repeat that part. She just says die. She says it once, not twice. Interesting things that are going on here. So God's word begins to be twisted, and then God's character is ultimately questioned. The serpent said to the woman, verse 4, chapter 3, you're not going to die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, God doesn't want you to be able to judge good and evil. And that's why I titled this point, that's not good, because God had already told them what was good seven times in Genesis 1, after each day. It was good. 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 He keeps repeating. He told them what was good. He told them 
what to do. But they want to be able to be arbiters. They want to be able to be judges of what's good and evil. That's the problem. They want to dethrone God. The serpent is trying to get them to assert themselves. And you know, he's not all wrong on the temptation here. They do become aware of good and evil. And that is the whole problem with humanity, is that we are aware. We're making decisions on these things. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote in the, he was a an incredible theologian. Um, he, was, he died as a young man, as a martyr. Um, actually, during World War II, he joined an assassination attempt to kill Hitler. Um, he was a German pastor, and he came to the States for a while, had an opportunity to stay, and ended up going back, and just a fascinating life, and he was a prolific author. And he said this, the knowledge of good and evil is therefore separation from God. Only against God can man know good and evil. So we weren't supposed to be in this world. Why are ethics questions so hard for us sometimes? Because we weren't supposed to be making those decisions. We are now in a seat of judgment that we were never intended to be in. Praise God, he's given us his word for guidance, but that's why this is so hard for us. We weren't supposed to be. We were supposed to be managing and running God's good world according to his character and nature. So this is the beginning of the downfall of humans is becoming judges of good and evil. It's really interesting. So what happens from there? We know that they eat of the fruit. Verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, a lot going on here as well. I've been fascinated by this story for such a long time, and I think when I was younger, I I probably missed something in this verse that says the man was with her. He's right there. He's right there. I think I, as, a, as a kid, at least, I sort of pictured he's off, you know, planting mango trees or something, uh, tending the garden somewhere, and he comes back and goes, what happened? What'd you do? It wasn't that way. Um, he's there. He's there with her. And how manly is this? Like, hey, I'll let you eat it first. <laughs> oh, she didn't drop dead. Oh, I'll try it now. Um, you go first. Uh, that's what happens. He takes and he eats as well. Now, the fallout is absolutely catastrophic. I've got a list of parts of the fallout of the fall here that we'll talk through. At least this happens. In fact, more. Shame. Did you notice the first thing that happens is they notice and recognize that they are unclothed. They are naked. She took of its fruit and ate... Verse seven, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is so fascinating. Isn't it interesting that I think everybody, if we're honest here this morning, has had some sort of dream at some point in their life about being caught in a public place unclothed. All right, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I, I see some heads nodding along. What is it about that particular fear it taps into something that's just deep inside of us, doesn't it? 
There's a complete loss of innocence that we see here in the garden. I find it interesting too that if you have little kids around, their favorite state of existence is unclothed, right? Have you noticed that? No shame, running around. But then something clicks, something clicks somewhere along the way, and all of, all of a sudden they become very aware of being unclothed. It should click, at least, at some point, and they're growing up. It's this loss of innocence. And isn't it interesting? This is particularly prevalent amongst our teens today. It's not restricted to teens, but particularly a problem for our teens today, I think partly with TV and social media and things like that. Um, Body image types of issues is particularly a problem. Um, Just the shame associated with your body. Am I too big, too little, too muscular, too thin? Do I have the right hair color? Or for some of us, enough hair. Skin tone, is my nose too big, too small? My feet are too big, my feet are too small. My hair isn't curly, I want it to be curly. It's, it goes on and on and on, doesn't it? I don't look right. I, I wanna change my image. This, this is directly a result of the fall. We, this a shame associated with even the way that you look and to be unclothed with their partner. This is in contrast to the really kind of bliss that we see back in 224. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You see, there's this marriage and this beauty of these two people that are together and there's no shame. All of a sudden, there's shame. Fear also is introduced. Verse eight, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you walking and I was, what, afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? We'll stop there for a moment. There's fear that's introduced. There's good evidence to believe that this was probably something God was in communion with his people, his first people. It wasn't the first time, we're relatively sure, that God had visited them in this sort of way, but now they're ashamed. Now they're hiding. Sort of like when, the, when you're a kid and you get left at the house by yourself for the first time and your parents show back up. If you haven't been up to anything and you wanted to prove yourself a good, responsible young man or young woman and you clean the house and you did the dishes and you didn't break anything, you're kind of glad they're back, right? Like, hey, come on in, look at what I've done. But if you didn't do any of those things, if you trashed the house, if you broke a bunch of stuff, you kind of don't want to hear that car pull up. You kind of don't want to hear the door open. All of a sudden, they are afraid of God. They're not supposed to be afraid of God. God's their creator. They're in communion with him. They're his image bearers. But they're fearful of God. Relational strife is introduced Notice what happens. God asked, did you eat of this tree that I commanded you not to eat of? This is verse 12. What does the guy do? The man said, the woman that you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. All her fault. Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this thing you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. All right, snowball rolls downhill. Nothing has changed, right? Blame shifting. The woman you gave me, she did it. 
the man, the serpent, he did it. They're just rolling the responsibility down the hill. There's now this disruption in the marriage. There's relational strife that's introduced. And on this point, I think it's important to also note this disruption that comes in verse 16. So the, after this event, the curse is delivered down. He says, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So there's introduced now this difficulty and this relational strain and strife into the relationship. All relational difficulty traces back to the fall, all of it. That's why we have problems. Remember, if sin is not the problem, the cross is not the answer, sin is the problem. The fall is the problem. Now, I'm only creating problems right now. We're gonna talk about how to get out of this hole in just a little bit. Relational strife is introduced. Difficulty in work. Difficulty in work. So after this whole exchange, God begins to deliver the curse, and I just want you to notice that the humans are not cursed. The ground is cursed, okay? Significant. Verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, that you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of ground you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. See, many times I think people think that work is a result of the fall. That's not accurate. Uh, Work existed before the fall. Now it just gets really hard, all right? So uh, it's just difficult to get things done now. Many of you can identify with that, depending on the type of week that you've had. It can be hard to get things done in any job. doesn't matter what it is that you're doing. And one theologian said it this way, Adam had come from the soil, and he received his nourishment from it, but this relationship had been broken, resulting in an estrangement which is expressed in a silent combat between man and the soil. Anybody else feel that way in their yard? There's a silent combat going on between man and the soil. For man's sake, a curse lies upon the soil and now refuses to let him win its produce easily. Uh, Some of the gardeners amongst us can probably appreciate that. You plant one thing and all of a sudden you have a garden full of weeds or you have dollar weed all over your yard and for some reason your HOA does not appreciate dollar weed. I'm like... It's all green. Just cut it short. Nobody knows the difference. It's my perspective. I know I'm probably in the minority around here on that. Like, it's just, just cut it short and nobody knows. Just, it's all green. It's fine. But you plant one thing and something else grows. Uh, the earth is in rebellion, in silent combat with us now. And the tools and resources, work is in silent combat constantly with us. Death is also introduced, as we talked about earlier, that was the promise of God that you're going to surely die, but the death isn't immediate, and that's what maybe throws Adam off a little bit, because they probably thought that they were going to die immediately, and certainly reading through the text, I think many of us probably would have come to that conclusion as well. 
But that's not how it works. It's not how God chose to do it. Look at verse 22 of Genesis 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove him out to the east of the garden and he put this really scary guard up that they weren't going back through. These cherubim with swords flaming in every direction. The knowledge of good and evil and the entry of sin into the world now means that humans cannot live forever in this current fallen, broken world. I've posed this question to people before. If you had the option to drink of the eternal fountain of youth in the broken, fallen world, in the state that we live in, would you want to do it? Would you want to live forever in this broken world? And so he doesn't kill them right away, but he allows them to die. He lets them die. Interesting thing. So they have to leave the garden. I think a lot of times we emphasize they had to leave the garden because they're sinful and they couldn't be in God's presence. I think that's true. But there's another piece here that's explicitly said they couldn't be in the garden because they couldn't eat of the tree and live forever. They must now go through the natural process of death. That's part of the fall. Some of you may be familiar with the name uh, Ellie Vessel, uh, survivor of the Holocaust, World War II. And he had, he had a really amazing story. Um, he died in 2016. And he became, um, became a very well-known, prominent speaker um, and, and really had a kind of a contradictory story to Corey Ten Boom in some ways. Uh, the Holocaust kind of sealed the, the fate of Elie Vessel in some ways, that there, there can't be a God um, because of these horrible, awful things that happened. And I read his book, Night, a few years ago, and, which I'd, I'd encourage you if, you, if you want to see a little bit of a glimpse into depravity and into the, the darkness of the human psyche and heart, um, read that book. He captures it very well. He said this, never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things, even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself never. And what always stuck with me was that line, if I'm condemned to live as long as God himself, he couldn't imagine a world in which he had to continue to live with these terrible memories that he had of the Holocaust. So death is introduced to the world, and death is, death is viewed as a bad thing, but it's also viewed as something that is necessary now. Death is hard for us because it wasn't natural. It wasn't a part of the created order. That's why it's so sad. Whenever I do a funeral or memorial service, Part of what I want to do is I never want to try to talk anyone out of grieving, okay? I think sometimes as Christians, we, we fixate on they're in a better place now, which is true, and that's encouraging in its own right. But let me just ask you, if you've lost someone that was very important and dear to you that you loved, does telling yourself that make the sting of death completely go away? It, it doesn't for me, um, and I don't think it does for you either. I think it's very important Paul says, when he's talking about the resurrection, he he says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, 
death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So he taunts death and says, there's gonna be a time when we say death, where is your sting? But let's, let's just be good Bible students here and ask the question, when is the when, right? When, when is the when? Well, when the second coming, when you put on, when the imperishable puts on the, or when the perishable puts on the imperishable. That's when death is gonna be no more. That's what we look forward to. So the fallout of the fall, it's catastrophic. So we're introduced to shame, fear, relational strife, difficulty in work, death, and finally the imputation of sin. And what I mean by that is Adam's sin is seen as our sin. Look at what it says in Romans chapter five. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. You are now viewed as a sinner in Adam. There's a lot to say about this, but that's the big picture of what's going on. So the fallout of the fall is catastrophic. Let's talk a little bit about the fall and our falling. Uh, The nature of the fall I'll go through this relatively quickly. The nature of the fall. Here's the thing. There's only so many ways to sin in life, all right? Now, there's a lot of different, like, subcategories of that. But whatever the sin is, you can kind of trace it to one of these three things. The desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Just pick one, and your sin traces back to that. I think there's parallel that you see between these events, the desire of the flesh. Eve, she saw that the tree was good for food. Jesus, the temptation that he defeated, turned these stones into bread. Desire of the flesh, desires of the eyes. She saw that the fruit was a delight to the eyes. And then the temptation of Jesus, throw yourself off the temple. Desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it will make you wise. I'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The temptation for Jesus was, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. I think these, there's a progression here as well. Have you noticed 1 Timothy, or 1 John 2, 15 through 16 here? These three, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life. I think there's also a logical progression through life. Think about it. You're younger, teenagers, going through hormonal changes. There's intense desire, often, desires of the flesh, lust, things like that, desires of the flesh, then you desire to acquire, right? You get a little bit older and you start collecting things and you collect more things and more things and more things and get positions and such. And then when you are more, my new word, seasoned in life, when you're more seasoned, you look back and you say, look at what I've accomplished. Look at what I've done. Back in my day, this is what I did. Back in my day, I did this on the athletic field or I did this in my military career or I did this or that. There's a progression. Lust of the flesh, desires of the flesh, desires to acquire and then this pride that goes with it. I think that's what's going on here. All right, let's look at this last one. What about the gospel and the fall? We need to end with some hope, right? Go back to Genesis 3, Genesis 3 and verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman 
and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we're introduced, there's this first preaching of the gospel. There's gonna be a conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There's gonna be this conflict that continues on and on and on, and eventually there's gonna be one who's gonna crush the head of the serpent. He's gonna bruise the head, he's gonna crush, he's gonna defeat the serpent. Now it's interesting, right after Genesis three, of course we have Genesis four, that was profound, but there we have, now Adam knew, uh, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So now there's a son. Oh, the seed of the woman. The serpent crushing one. Maybe Cain's the one. And then she has another, Abel. And then one of them kills the other one, which effectively eliminates both of them from being the serpent crusher. And now we're introduced to genealogies. That's why we have all these genealogies in the Bible. Name after name after name after name after name after name after name until we get to the last one, the last genealogy. We don't have genealogies after Jesus because we're there. The serpent crushing one has come. We finished. We finished. The seed of the woman has come and crushed the head of the serpent. No longer needed. How does this all fit together? Romans 5, 18 and 19. We mentioned earlier, Romans 5, 12, that sin is introduced through one man but also righteousness is introduced through one man. So Jesus, in the New Testament, is viewed as the last Adam. He's the better Adam. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is the hope and this really introduces us into what we wanna do next week, and that is talk about redemption. What does it mean to be redeemed in Christ? Well, it means that the one man, we're no longer in Adam. We can now be in Christ and forgiven. The results and the curse is reversed in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this time that you've given us together, and we thank you for